0: So Acts chapter 7, we'll just read it quickly and then we'll pray, ask God to help us and then we'll get to work. It concludes verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and notice this. They stopped their ears. The text says that they stopped their ears. They literally put their fingers in their ears. Not only were they merely just rejecting what he was saying, they were so enraged they couldn't tolerate to even hear the sound of it any longer. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8 begins this way. Saul, the fellow that was guarding all of the cloaks, Saul approved of his execution. It's as though Luke Wants to make sure you don't miss this. He is giving his tacit endorsement to what's happening by virtue of the fact that he's watching over the garments of those individuals who are casting the stones. But Luke wants you to understand no, he really approved of what was taking, of what was happening here to Stephen. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You can't leave off at verse 3. You really need to know what happens in verse 4. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you have given to us. Father, as we reflect on this text this morning, we pray, God, that you would show us that the Christian life is not only a life lived on mountaintops where we experience spiritual highs and we see your word proclaimed to the nations. Help us to understand that as we walk with you, Father, we inevitably will go into the valley as well. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us today. That in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, in the face of hatred, oh Lord, I pray you would remind us today that just as you are with us on the mountaintops, you are with us in the valley bottoms. We pray you drive that truth home into our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I'm not sure who first coined the phrase mountaintop, mountaintop experiences or mountaintop high when describing uh, the intense moments of spiritual closeness uh, that one can feel at times walking with God, but it is a fitting description. Um, As I pause in my own journey as a disciple and As I've walked with Christ over the years, there have been clear moments in which it seemed to me that God was just so real, so present. It was as though I could experience him. I sensed that he was right there with me, in the room with me. There have been times in which I have experienced this. Uh, Looking back, I can... I can say that I definitely felt it when the night that I prayed to surrender, I surrendered to Christ and the night I prayed to ask him to forgive me and I received him into my heart. I knew very clearly in that moment that he was right there with me. I've also experienced it while at camps as a youth. A teenager, like our teenagers that go to camp, I can remember clear messages given in the sweltering hot Texas summer heat, in which there was just something that's so poignant that stood out to me from the scriptures. That even though I'm surrounded by hundreds of other sweaty teenagers, it's like none of that matters. I have Christ right there with me, speaking to me. I've experienced it in quiet libraries, studying at seminary. I've also experienced it in the solitude of walks. I'm sure you have too. We live for those moments in which we sense God is close to us. We live for those mountaintop highs because we want to see God's glory. Unfortunately, if we live a life that is consumed with always pursuing those mountaintop highs, we will miss his leading when he takes us into the valley. And he very much so does guide his children down below for seasons of testing and refinement we see that here in acts chapter 7 stephen has preached to a multitude he has preached the gospel he has communicated it so clearly that they understood what he was saying they knew the truth of what he was getting at and yet their response was not the response that stephen had when he heard the gospel They did not hear this as so many thousands did on the day of Pentecost and feel cut to the heart and convicted and cry out, what do I do? That wasn't their response. When Stephen preaches this message, their response, as it says at the tail end of Acts chapter 7, was to become enraged, to plug their ears to rush together at him. Interesting expression. Uh, it says when they rushed together at him at the tail end of verse 57, uh, in the Greek, literally of one mind. They were already settled on what they wanted to do. It wasn't as though they were going to take Stephen, pull him aside and say, what should we do with this guy? It says that they, when they heard what he said, they were enraged, they plugged their ears, and with one mind, they rushed at him. No discussion necessary. They knew what they were going to do. They were going to execute him. And that's exactly what they did. You see this and you're wondering why this crowd's response was different than the response of the crowd at Pentecost. When Peter preaches in Acts chapter two, thousands came to faith. When Stephen preaches in Acts chapter seven, thousands came to murder him. What we are left with is the reality that Christ is polarizing. Some will be drawn by him to faith in him, and some, when they encounter him, it doesn't matter how winsome the message, it doesn't matter how compelling the logic, it doesn't matter how persuasive the speech, some will reject him. And it's not simply a matter of we disagree As a spiritual matter, it cuts to the heart and it inflames the passions one way or the other. It either calls us to surrender or, in the case of these individuals here, it calls us to rage. We shouldn't be surprised at this Because Jesus told us that this is what would happen. I want you to flip with me to Matthew chapter 10. I want to show you something that Jesus taught very clearly when it comes to salvation. In Matthew chapter 10, flip over there if you've bookmarked it. In verse 32, Jesus talking, teaching his disciples, makes this statement, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, That is to say that Jesus is who he says he is, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now please don't misunderstand the sweetest desire of Christ in this particular passage. Friendship. Family. Christ absolutely wants to be your friend He absolutely wants you to become a part of the family of God. The question is not, does Jesus want to be our friend? The real question that's presented to us in this text, as well as the text that we find over in Acts chapter 7, the question isn't, does Jesus want to be our friend? He absolutely is. The question is, do we want him as our king? That is the question. There's no no concern regarding Christ's love for us. The issue is, what do we do with him? In this particular passage, Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men. The Greek word there for acknowledge is a compound word, hama from hamas and lego to speak literally to speak the same as, to say what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says, if you're to acknowledge me before men, it's not simply a matter of saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's a historical figure that lived 2,000 years ago. I believe that some stuff happened and he got killed on a cross. That isn't what Christ is saying in this text. He is saying, if you would acknowledge him before men, you say the same as him. And in case you've missed it, Jesus is quite clear in saying, he is the son of God. He has come, the sinless, perfect one, to die on the cross for sinful humanity in order to pay the price that we cannot pay in our place that through faith in what he has done on the cross, we might be forgiven. Jesus is saying anyone who acknowledges, who confesses the same as him, he will acknowledge before Christ. And this is where this play on words is so crucial. If we would agree with Christ then as Christ turns to the Father to speak of us, he will speak the same of us that we are with him. But there's an edge. In one instance, Jesus absolutely wants us to become a part of his family. If we would acknowledge him, he would embrace us. But then there's an edge on this text. Whoever, he goes on, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny Before my Father. And here we find that there is not only agreement, there is disagreement. There is not only confession, there is also rejection. Jesus promises that if we deny Him, that is, if we do not acknowledge Him as our King, as our Savior, as Christ before the world, then He also will deny us before the Father in heaven. Now, when it comes to agreement, There are degrees, there are differences. Um, Sometimes when individuals get into arguments with each other, uh, they can agree with a lot of the points that are being made by the individual they're arguing with, and at the same time, there could be one crucial point that they disagree with. So even though there is much they have in common, there are still crucial things which they are in opposition. And that's just the nature of it. To be somewhere is to be somewhere specific. I'm not just a vague abstract preacher speaking to you from the internet. I am a flesh and blood person standing here, right here in this location, speaking to you, and you're right here in this location as well. To be somewhere is to be somewhere specific. If I go home and I want to sit in my rocking chair, my rocking chair is at a specific location. Not only is it at my house, it is at a specific location within my house. If I want to sit in my rocking chair... I've got to go a little bit further than the driveway. I'm going to have to go a little bit further than the front porch. And even the front stairs aren't close enough. No, I'm going to have to get up into the family room. And even then, I'm not yet in my rocking chair. You say, why are you drawing this out? Because the point I want you to understand is when we speak in agreement with Christ, we must be in agreement with Christ. It isn't enough to say there is this Jesus that's spoken of in the Bible, and we like a lot of what he says. We like a lot of what he teaches. But, of course, there are always these things that he says and that he talks about that we would you know, we would take umbrage with. We might qualify it. We might nuance it a bit. That is not what he is calling for. To be in Christ, to acknowledge Christ, you go all the way into that rocking chair. You agree with him all in or, and it doesn't matter how close you are, whether you're standing next to the rocking chair, you might as well be standing on the other side of Kamloops or the other side of the world. To be in agreement with Christ means you come to a point where he is. And then you speak agreement. And if you don't acknowledge him, then he does not acknowledge you. Now that is a cutting word. And just so you know how cutting it is, he tells you in the very next passage. Continue to look with me in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 36. In case you were thinking this was an easy statement, he wants you to know it's not so easy. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus is calling for us to give our allegiance to him. And perhaps the most painful cost of that allegiance if we are to be loyal to him, might just be that such loyalty results in the betrayal of our own family. We might earn for ourselves the scorn, the indignation, or even the rage of those whom we love most. Christ is saying, you acknowledge me before men, and it will not result in peace. It will result in in division to say yes to jesus is to say no to any other god any other philosophy any other new age movement or any other form of spirituality to say yes to jesus is to say no to all the rest and there aren't just degrees of quibbling and quabbling where i kind of like this maybe i'll take a little bit of that no christ is all and all the rest of the world is not christ Just as my rocking chair is here and anywhere else is anywhere else, but not there. Stephen drives the point home. At the tail end of his sermon, he says, You stiff necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always are resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did so to you. And which of the prophets who spoke of Christ did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who now, as they killed those who announced beforehand the coming, one, the coming of the righteous one, you have now betrayed and murdered him. This is his closing comment. Stephen is driving for a decision. They have to choose one way or another. And as Jesus promised, the result was that they became Stephen's enemies and they, they murdered him. The text tells us that Saul was there watching. And of course, for those of you who are familiar with this character, you know Saul eventually will come to faith in Christ. There are two passages that Saul, that Paul, also known as Saul, has written that really stick out to me as I reflect on this. Writing in, in Romans, Paul speaking of Jews makes this statement, I bear them witness, the Jews, the Israelites, That they have a zeal for God, that is, they have a passion for God, but not, listen to this, not according to knowledge. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that's in Romans chapter 10. And right in that moment, I'm crying out, this would be a good time, Paul, for you to say where you first heard that. Because you first heard it from Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Paul makes an additional comment, though, over in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of the spiritual reality of man. He says you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Listen to this. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In Romans 10, he says, I bear witness, they have a zeal for God. The Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's not as though their minds are defective. It's not as though they're not capable of thinking. Because in Ephesians, he says, they were children of wrath, carrying out all kinds of evil deeds in their body and with their mind. And so we see here in this particular passage, Paul, used to be called Saul, he's teaching through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that when he was there that day listening to Stephen preach, it was a lack of knowledge, it was a form of ignorance, we could call it that, absolutely. It was, though, as he says in Romans, an attempt to establish his own righteousness apart from the only righteousness that we can ever have, which is the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. His knowledge was misinformed because he believed wrongly that he could actually earn his righteous standing with God. And then as he's elaborating on that over in Ephesians, he says, we all were like this once upon a time. We were all blind. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses. And he attributes it. He says, we were all following the prince of the power of the air. That is, following after Satan. And that's what we really see when we look at Acts chapter 7. Why all of these people rushed together at him? They were sinful, they were worshiping a false god, and they were ultimately under the control of satanic forces, the devil himself. The grace that reconciles a person to God antagonizes that same person to the evil one, to Satan. The transformation that comes to our hearts through faith is found in being removed from the kingdom of darkness and transferred over into the kingdom of light. And using that illustration from scripture, we ask the simple question, what agreement could there ever be between light and darkness? What compromise do these two things ever reach? In John, the Gospel of John says, the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There is no power other than the power of deception in what Satan has. And these folks, they kill Satan, they kill Stephen because they are under the power of deception. They are under the lies of the enemy. They are filled with their own spiritual stubbornness and all of this means that they're not able to hear Stephen They're not able to humbly accept what Stephen is preaching. The text says to us, Saul approved of his execution. And it says, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. When they killed Stephen on that day, it wasn't just Stephen they had had enough. And this young, aspiring Pharisee who had studied under the tutelage of Gamaliel, this man named Saul, whom we will eventually come to know as Paul, he was a zealot. He regarded this teaching as not merely an aberration, but a dangerous heresy that sought to undermine the temple, sought to do away with the covenant as he understood it. And he thought, as he was looking at all of this, that the only course of action was to murder and kill those individuals who were advancing this teaching. And the scripture, tells us that as a result of this conclusion this man he goes he gets letters from the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and he begins a campaign to eradicate christianity the text tells us a great persecution arose against the church in jerusalem on that particular day and it says later on in the next verse saul was ravaging the church ravaging it Tearing it apart, tearing believer from believer. He entered into house after house. Uh, Luke doesn't say this specifically, but it almost sounds as though he's going door to door, kicking in doors, looking for anyone that might be a worshiper of Christ. He's going house to house, dragging off both men, and the text is clear, women. This is a full-scale campaign. I'm surprised it doesn't mention children. I doubt that Paul was actually pursuing children, but considering the rage and the relentlessness which, with which he pursued his per- persecution of the church, a lot of Ps in that sense, it wouldn't have surprised me to hear that he's going after the kids as well. But God has a plan. Romans eight twenty-eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you're there that day and you just watched Stephen be brutally murdered by means of one rock after another being thrown at him, this is not the verse you're quoting to each other. Oh, so sad for Stephen, but don't worry. God's going to bring some good out of this. And yet, as you look at this particular text, you know who is writing that verse? It's from Romans. That's Saul. The man that approved of the execution that organized the campaign to destroy the church in Jerusalem. The murderer eventually writes these words for those who love God. All things. All things work together. For good. A couple weeks ago, I was having coffee with some pastors, and one pastor was sharing with us that he recently had been called to the hospital, where a young couple in his church uh, had delivered twins. And unfortunately, as a result of a very rare medical condition, both both twins were going to die. They weren't going to be able to live. And he sat there with them in the delivery room in the NICU of the hospital. And uh, he just uh, prayed with them as they were basically waiting for their kids to die, which took a process of about eight hours. And then they eventually passed away and went home to be with the Lord. And both the mom and the dad looked at this pastor and they said to him, Why? Why? As you're considering this text here, Stephen was a phenomenal leader within the church, an incredible preacher. He was able to unpack the covenant and the temple and how all of these things related to Christ in a way that somebody like Peter never did. He was able to explain it compellingly and convincingly. The text bears witness that he was full of wisdom and full of the Spirit, and that great numbers of people were coming to faith because of his ministry. And yet here, in chapter 7, he enrages the mob, and he ends up dead. And the question has to be asked, Why, God? Why would you let that happen? As we ponder this question, we have to acknowledge that we don't have the why, we don't have the answer. It's easy for Luke writing 30, 40 years after these events to say, yep, and then everybody was scattered as a result of the persecution and everywhere they went, they preached the word. And as a result of that, the gospel went out to the ends of the earth. It's easy to say that 40 years down the road when you can look back in hindsight, in retrospect and understand At the end of it all, what what Christ was doing in the midst of it. But the reality is, for all of us here, that's not going to be our understanding. We will come into tragedy. We will come into trials. We will experience the loss of friends, the persecution of the faith. And in the midst of it, we will ask the question, why? And we know that God is up to something. We know that he's doing something good. But we're not going to know in that moment just exactly what it was. The answer that is given is that the good Lord gives. And sometimes the good Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We look here at this particular text. Stephen has preached, they have responded in hostility, and they have murdered him. We know that there's a good ending coming. But do we know that? Do we know that in our own hearts when we experience tragedy and trial? A number of years ago, a friend of mine in university He uh, was of Jewish heritage, and he had had an experience with uh, a white supremacist, a white nationalist. He was Jewish by birth. He eventually converted to Christianity. And in his particular neighborhood, and there's really no nice way to say it, um, this individual was—he was— a white supremacist. I mean, I, I'm trying to come up with a nicer way to put it. There's really no way, no way, nice way to put it. He had uh, KKK tattooed on one side of his neck. He had a swastika tattooed on the other side of his neck. This was an individual who subscribed to the teachings of Mein Kampf, who thought Hitler was on to something good and, and supported Nazism. And he believed that um, that there were individuals in the world, certain races, certain ethnicities that were, by virtue of their existence, detracting from other ethnicities being capable of reaching their full potential. And so uh, he hated my Jewish friend because my Jewish friend was Jewish. He was of Jewish descent. Now, what's interesting, um, he on a number of occasions played pranks on my Jewish friend, but what's interesting is he eventually wound up going back to uh, Germany to live there in order to grow in his white nationalist Ideology. He connected with other friends who were in um, sort of Nazi punk bands, skinhead type groups, these types of things. And he joined in with a group that used violence in order to prove their devotion to the saving of the white Aryan race. And they would, as a result of their commitment to this belief, hurt people that were not white, blonde haired, blue eyed type individuals. To them, it was a raucous good time. It was a community. It was a family. It was something they could do together. Eventually, this man repented, came back, and I actually had this chance to sit down with him. His name is Tim, Tim Garrett. He, um, he shared with me, and it's fascinating. He still has the, the swastika and the KKK and everything else tattooed on his neck, but he shared with me that God had saved him and had led him out of that. And he eventually did give his life to Christ. And as I was sitting with him, and you gotta imagine, it's really weird to be a Texas boy with your Bible sitting down to coffee in a Starbucks in, in Dallas, Texas, and the fellow you're sitting across has all kinds of tattoos and, you know, looks rather terrifying. I mean there's really no nice way to say it. He's just the way he's tatted up, it's just like, wow, like what's going on there? You know? And I'm so I'm sitting down having coffee with him, and um, he said to me, he said that he was asked to translate a book that was written originally in Scandinavian to translate it into German and as he began to translate this book as, uh, to help further the ideology of this, uh, this group that he was in this, this uh, Nazi group that he was in uh, he recognized in that moment in the quiet of his own heart that it was hatred it was hatred And that the acts of violence that were being called for and the rationale that was being given for performing those acts of violence, that it was illogical, that there was no real reason as he sat there contemplating it for why one race should be prized against another one. And he couldn't, he went back and he started to reread everything and rethink everything and doubts started to pop into his mind. And that's what he said. He says, everybody has doubts, Josh. He says what you do is you put them to one side, and then another doubt pops up, and you put it to the side, and then that small couple of doubts becomes a stack of doubts, and you keep adding doubts, and you keep adding doubts, and then that small stack of doubts becomes a little mountain of doubts, but you just keep putting them to the side while you go out with your friends every evening, and you engage in these horrific acts. You wake up the next morning, and there are more doubts, and there are more doubts, and you just keep setting them to the side until eventually those doubts become a giant mountain of doubt And you just can't deal with it anymore. Now Tim had met a woman and he had had a child that had a family. And she was really concerned for his lifestyle. She was concerned that he was going to get killed doing the things he was doing. And she began to wonder whether or not it was the right thing for them to be teaching their child. And these started to contribute to his doubts. And so eventually what ended up happening was... Garrett had to make a choice. And to you and me, it's like, what choice? Leave that behind. Go back to society. Go back to your family. But this is what he said. If you want to leave the skinhead group, if you want to leave the Nazi group, if you decide that you want to go back to society, you have to recognize that society does not want you back. Who wants to sit down and have coffee with a skinhead? He said to me, as I'm sitting there drinking coffee across the table from him, rather loudly, so that everybody in the room kind of overheard, and I'm like, you know, hunkering down like, yeah, who wants to drink coffee with a Nazi? (laughs) Good question. I don't know what I'm doing here. he says, you want to leave. You have the doubts. But where will you go? Where will you go? Nobody wants you. Well, he couldn't handle it any longer. So he started using his wife's cover-up to like plaster his neck and stuff to try to hide the tattoos. He left the village he was staying in in Germany. They moved to a different town. His fellow Aryan Nazis pursued him, encouraged him to return. He had no education. He did not have a complete mastery of the German language. He was struggling to find work. He ended up taking work from a Turkish man who was a Christian. He had had a bad history with Turkish Muslims. He believed that they were all a bunch of terrorists and out to destroy the world, and so he had misgivings about working for this Turkish Christian man. And one night, he was invited to dinner by this Turkish Christian man And his assumption was that Turkish men hated him and he hated them because this is the clash of races. This is how it is. But he decided to go. He took his wife. He took his child. He sat down to dinner. It was a lovely time. And then he realized that they were serving fish soup. And he hated fish soup. And in his heart, the struggle began. If I tell him I don't like fish soup, will that offend him? Will he then think less of me as a person because I'm a white person that typically likes to eat steak and potatoes whereas he's a Turkish person and he eats different food? Is this where the races and the different cultures are going to clash? And so he began to stress over it. Finally, he couldn't, couldn't handle any more. He just said, listen, I appreciate your hospitality but I don't like fish soup. And he braced for it. Is this when we have to come to blows? And the Turkish Christian man shrugged his shoulders said, That's fine. Called his wife over, asked her to prepare something else. She brought in a chicken. Tim says to me, he says to me as he's recounting that story whatever racist hate was left there in my heart, that Christian man broke it. He showed me love, he showed me kindness, and even when I said I didn't like his soup, he gave me a chicken. the Turkish Christian man who had hired him, shared the gospel with him. And my friend Tim Garrett came to faith that night. And he moved back to Texas where eventually he came a part of my church and we had coffee one day. I wanted to hear his story. You say, why do you tell me all of that? When Stephen gets murdered, Stephen and the church around him has gone from a mountain peak experience into a dark valley. And we can look at the mob and we can say that was a mob mentality and they were wrong and what they did was wrong. And we can get angry and we can respond equally out of hate. But that's not what Stephen would have wanted. His last prayer, if you look, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And the Lord answered that prayer. Because in just one more chapter, chapter 9, the Lord is going to come to Saul and open his eyes to have faith in Christ, the very man who approved of the execution. You and I, we will go into the valley. We will go into moments of darkness. And Although we can look at all of these different stories in scripture and we can fast forward to the end of the book or the end of the chapter and we can see exactly what it was that God was doing, you and I are going to go into the valleys. We are going to experience moments of trial and persecution and the temptation is going to be so great for us to respond out of anger, out of hatred, and none of that will be an act of faith in Christ who is sovereign over all if we would respond the way Christ would have us to respond. We have to recognize that even though this is a tragedy, and even though this is evil, that God is still reigning in the midst of evil, there are still purposes that he is going to accomplish, and though we can't see them, we can still quote Romans 8.28 and recognize the man who wrote that verse. We know that God works all things for good, For those who love him. So says a murderer that was saved by Jesus in answer to a prayer of a man that he killed. That has to be our heart. And so, church, when we go into those valleys, don't expect to know the whys. Rejoice in the fact that you don't know why, but that he does. When you're in those dark moments, when you're in those hardships, say, God, I don't get it, but I don't need to get it because I know you know. Don't let those unanswered questions break your faith. Let those unanswered questions strengthen your faith. You could say Elijah was a man who had experienced a mountaintop experience. Again, I'm not sure who first coined that phrase, but 1 Kings 18 to 19 is a sweeping narrative of the account of the life of Elijah. In chapter 18, Elijah finds himself on Mount Carmel, and he sees God in, as he's throwing down thunderous fire from heaven, and it's consuming the altar of Baal. At Mount Carmel, God definitely showed up in Elijah's life in unmistakable ways. Later at Mount Horeb, later on in chapter 19, God revealed himself, not through fire, but instead a gentle whisper. Hiding in a cave, Elijah saw all the usual metaphors of God's power, and he saw all of them sweep past. And yet finally, he found God in the gentle whisperings of the Almighty. But between these two mountaintop experiences... Whether it be Mount Carmel and fire raining down on the idols of Baal, or whether it be Mount Oreb and God whispering to Elijah in that small, still voice, between these two mountains, as we look at these in 1 Kings 18 and 19, we forget there is a valley between those two. Elijah spent time in the wilderness underneath a broom tree. Between one mountaintop experience and the other, he found himself despairing of life and even praying for death so broken was he at what had become of his life and the scriptures tells us that as he was grieving an angel of the lord showed up and said eat some food the journey is too great for you what journey i'm done this is over forget it you must have misunderstood me i'm ready to die now and jesus response there to elijah was eat some food take a little nap. We'll be getting up soon to go on our way. Where? doesn't matter. The journey is too great. Eat what you need right now. And that's what I want you to walk away with this morning, First Baptist. When you find yourself in those valleys, the mountains are coming, but Christ is still there. And he gives you what you need for the next step of the journey. Trust in him. Pray with me. Father, we say thank you for the valleys. Thank you for all the right ways in which you break us in the valleys. Thank you for all the right ways in which you remove from us the illusion that we get to know everything that's going to happen and we can have it all perfectly planned out and that somehow if we can just see far enough down the road we can anticipate every variable or every conflict and crisis that might come and we can plan accordingly. Lord, you show us time and again. That is not the call of a life of Christian. You are the one in which we are to hope. You are the one to whom we are called to look. And so, Father, I just pray for your people who are gathered here. If we are of that type that is always trying to figure out what's next and never surrenders to you, I pray, Lord, that you would help to remind us that you are there in the valley, that you call us into the valley on occasion. And that it's not a moment to despair or to say that there is no God or why. If God is so good, why do such bad things happen? Those are all the wrong questions. Lord, help us to hope in you when we cannot see what you are doing. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.